0: I feel like I need to excuse myself because a few of you have probably caught me yawning over here in the front row. My four-month-old shepherd is sick at home with croup right now, and I don't think Brittany and I have gotten more than an hour and a half straight of sleep since last Friday. So I'm hanging in there by a thread, and if you notice me kind of rocking on stage, it's because rocking Shepherd back to sleep has subconsciously become ingrained in my psyche. Um, but nonetheless, I am thankful to be here in this community worshiping together and bringing God praise um, and I want to open up our time just with a word of prayer Heavenly Father Lord we thank you for the opportunity to worship you Lord this last week has held a lot of different emotions for a lot of different people for some of us we've been caring for sick little babies and and not sleeping a whole lot others are wrestling with grief that that comes from experiencing the holidays after losing a loved one. Some of us have, have, have had a joyous week, celebrating with, with family and friends. But Lord, wherever we're coming from this morning, uh, we come together to glorify you. Because Lord, you are consistent and you are good. And we can lean on you regardless of where our life is leading us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at what it means for us to be grateful for our futures. Now, the future can be a little bit volatile and and sometimes unpredictable, and so I want to turn back and look at I want to go back to the past to get a glimpse of what the future might look like. In in 1899 through 1910, there was a group of French artists that pulled together and, as a collective, created a series of depictions of France called France the Year 2000. All right? And and these artists kind of put their brains together, their, their creativity together, and they asked themselves what will the world look like? in 100 years. Well, the first thing that they thought were that all servicemen would, would have wings. Now, I'm not talking that they would have personal planes. They would actually have wings. So, so postmen could deliver envelopes all the way to the highest apartments. Firefighters could fly to hard-to-reach places and quell the burn, and that police officers could swoop down on unsuspecting criminals from above. They also believed that taxi cabs at this point w- would be flying around so as to not congest the normal flow of traffic. And instead of computers and the revolution that would be brought by that kind of technology, they skip that step. That was beneath them. Instead of having a machine that can compute for you, what if our minds could just hold all sorts of information? And so they imagined that classrooms and institutions and universities would have machines in them that would attach directly to the student's brain and you could put books and maps and articles into this machine and they would be directly downloaded into the mind of the pupil. That would certainly make studying for finals considerably easier. You see, they believed that that mankind's next frontier would not be space, but instead it would be the ocean. And they have these vivid depictions of humans riding back and forth to each other's homes while riding seahorses. Now, I'm not sure if they imagined that seahorses would grow exponentially or that humankind would shrink, but, but they were riding around on these seahorses. They thought uh, that, that barbecues would be held on the ocean floor and that people would gather together to play croquet underwater. Intercontinental travel had not fully been explored yet, and so they imagined that instead of flying over the Atlantic, we would travel underwater. And not by submarine, not by ship, instead by buses pulled by whales. You see, this is what the year 2000 would hold for us, the whale bus. My little nephews would actually love riding on a whale bus, but for the rest of us, that might be a little bit inconvenient and wet. Well, we can't really hold them accountable for that, because after all, they're... They're just artists. They're not necessarily scientists. They're not on the cutting edge of mechanics or industry. Uh, so instead, I want to turn to an article from February 1950 in Popular Mechanics, and and one of the foremost uh, mechanical engineers in the world at that time, Waldemar Campenfair, wrote an article called "Miracles You'll See in the Next." 50 years, and and he really wanted to focus in on what our lives as day-to-day human beings would be like. And so uh, in this one expert excerpt, he is talking about what our homes will look like. By 2000, wood, brick, and stone are ruled out because they are simply too expensive. Houses are are cheap. With all of its furnishings, Joe Dobson would pay only $5,000 for it. I wish that had been the case last year when Brittany and I bought our first home. Though it is gale-proof and weather-proof, it is built to last only about 25 years because in 2000, nobody sees any sense in building a home that will last an entire century. This Dobson house is not as highly mechanized as you may suppose chiefly because of the progress made by synthetic chemists there are no dishwashing machines for example because dishes are thrown away after they have been used but or rather they are put in a sink where they are dissolved by superheated water two dozen soluble plastic plates cost a dollar they dissolve at about 250 degrees fahrenheit so that boiling hot soup and stews can be served in them without inviting catastrophe very practical The plastics are derived from such inexpensive raw materials as cottonseed hulls, Jerusalem artichokes, soybean straw, and wood pulp. He goes on to talk about how we would clean our homes. Because everything in the future will be made of plastic and synthetic materials, instead of using vacuum cleaners and, and dusters and mops, you simply have to bring your garden hose inside and spray everything down well, that might be a little bit damp and wet. And so he had a solution for that too because every single home and every single room will have a super high-powered heater that will dissolve all of the water, evaporate it to dry it. Think about like the Dyson Airblade, but for your house. You see, he imagined that, that the food crisis would be met by engineering our meals out of sawdust and wood pulp doesn't seem like a future that I want to live in. He also imagined that, that our, our understanding of weather would be far more predictable. In fact, he thought that we would have a machine that could accurately p- depict any storm to 100% accuracy. Obviously, living in Chicago, we know that is not the case. However, because we would know exactly when storms were coming and what storms would look like, he predicted that we would no longer have hurricanes. Why? Because we would be able to identify when a hurricane was coming and where it was and simply flood the ocean with oil and light it on fire. And the updraft from this huge blaze would dissipate the storm before it could cause any damage and surely the fish in the sea would be fine with the temperature change. Well, if a mechanical engineer in 1950 couldn't predict the future, then surely in December of 1999, we'd have figured out what the year 2000 would look like. I don't know if many of you remember the craze around Y2K. I remember in December of 1999, my family went out to Costco and we bought two packs of ramen soup and a flat of water because surely on January 1st, 2000, the entire world as we knew it would crash because computers weren't engineered to understand the concept of 2000. I'm not sure how long one flat of ramen noodles would have lasted our our family of seven, but but it's the thought that counts. (laughs) The point is, is that the future is rather unpredictable. It's unreliable. Many of us don't even know what tomorrow is going to hold for us. More personally, think about our childhoods and, and what we thought we would be when we grew up. How many of us can say today that we're living into the dreams of our five-year-old imagination? When I was seven, I thought I was going to be an astronaut because I love freezer-dried ice cream. (laughs) How many of us, when we dated our first boyfriend or girlfriend, just assumed that this surely would be the person that I would marry? When we were in elementary school, we saw our older siblings go off to college, and we said, I'm going to go to that college to be like my big brother but we rarely do. So then how do we come in this place today, already understanding what it means to be thankful for our past and, and living into Thanksgiving in our present, and say we should be grateful for that which is unstable, unreliable, unpredictable, and unknown? Well, I think Paul gives us a little bit better understanding of the future. We need to rewind a few hundred more years to get a really accurate picture of what gratitude and thanksgiving for tomorrow really looks like. Let's look at Philippians 4, verse 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Rejoice. Now, this is one of those Christian verses that that is like painted on uh, reclaimed barn wood and sold on Etsy to be hung in your homes. You know, it's one of these these feel-good verses that that we throw around left and right uh, in all of these different circumstances. But as I really think about this verse, it kind of seems inauthentic. It seems forced or contrived. In fact, I feel like this is the kind of kind of verse that that causes the world to look at Christians and and think of us as sheltered, naive, ignorant, or perhaps we're just too privileged to understand what real suffering looks like. It conjures up images uh, of people stubbing their toe and, and giving someone a high five. There's a new DirecTV commercial that's just come out talking about uh, men and women that experience suffering but but celebrate in excitement. There's a woman walking down the hallway with her groceries, and and they spill out the bottom of the wet bags, and she raises her hands up in triumph. There's a gentleman that's leaving a football game, and he gets stuck in that turnstile, and he cheers as if his team just scored a touchdown, There's a lady at the office trying to pour herself a cup of coffee and it spills all over her blouse. And instead of screaming in pain, she giggles in joy. You see, rejoicing always, in all circumstances, seems borderline inappropriate. So when should we rejoice? When is an appropriate time for us as believers to celebrate? I think about my favorite football team, the Seahawks, when they played the New Orleans Saints years ago, and they were the bottom seed, and the Saints were the top seed, and the Seahawks, with the game on the line, handed off the ball to Marshawn Lynch, and the game looked grim, and it looked trending in the wrong way, and he ripped off a 67-yard touchdown, and all of the fans began celebrating so vigorously that it caused an earthquake in the greater Seattle region. We celebrate when our our team wins. We celebrate when we receive a promotion at work because of newfound responsibility or or potential financial security. Some of us celebrate after a job well done, an accomplishment that that we've pulled off just by the skin on our teeth. How many of us celebrated with uh, with our wife after we closed the door behind our final relative this thanksgiving? You see, but they're inappropriate times to celebrate too. You know, the old colloquialism goes, the game's not over until the fat lady has sung. Why? Because you shouldn't celebrate a win before it's been secured for you. I think about Chevy Chase's Christmas vacation, the holiday classic, where he is so sure, so certain that he is going to receive a holiday bonus that he goes ahead and he puts a down payment on a pool for his family that will cause significant financial turmoil if the holiday bonus doesn't come. And throughout the entire movie, we see him as he anxiously awaits this check to come in the mail, and it just keeps not coming. And finally, the day before Christmas, an envelope comes to him. It says, hey, sorry, this got lost in the mail. And he holds it up in front of his entire family's celebration and says, this is what I've been waiting for. I I can't even wait a second longer. In this envelope, is a bonus, and I have used this bonus to purchase the family a pool. And everyone celebrates their tears of joy, hugs because this Christmas season is finally turning around, and he excitedly rips open the letter only to find that his bonus is not thousands upon thousands of dollars, but instead a subscription to the Jelly of the Month Club. I'm actually a little bit curious what 12 different jellies would be like, so... Give that to me for a holiday present. Um, You see, we don't celebrate our college graduation before we've even taken our finals. There's a certain finality to celebration, there's a certain finality to rejoicing. It points to the fact that some good work has been completed and is worthy of celebrating. So, as Paul talks to the Philippians, a church that is being persecuted by the world around them, that is enduring great suffering, while he himself is sitting in a prison cell, what is there possibly to be celebrating in this time? Well, you see, Paul is reminding the believers in Philippi that that Christ, when he died on the cross, gave them a victory. Oftentimes we think about Christ's sacrifice on the cross and his forgiveness of our sins as as this great gift, but it's far more like a victory, a win than anything else. Because as Christ hung on that cross, as he descended down into hell, he defeated sin. You see, we are not waiting now, anxiously wondering whether or not God will defeat Satan in the end. We already know that he has won. And because Christ has already conquered sin, because he has already defeated Satan, we can rejoice knowing that our future is confirmed and assured for us. We don't need to worry if the check is going to bounce. Instead, we know that we will spend eternity with Christ in heaven. Because the victory is already won. And so as these believers experience suffering, as they experience persecution, they are reminded that that while the battle is difficult, the war is already won. And when it all is said and done, you will be celebrating in heaven. So so take courage. Rejoice now. It is completed. 1 Corinthians 15 55 through 57 says it this way. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does this rejoicing lead us to? What does this celebration bring about in our lives? Paul says in verse 5, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, at first reading this passage, this kind of feels like filler. Like it's behind, between all of these like very powerful verses that are quoted and used all the time. And and then Paul just slips this in as like, hey, be gentle. Let it be evident. The Lord's near. And in fact, I thought so much that it was filler that I had left it out of my sermon completely. I had asked the tech team just to have verses four and five together so that I could say it but not really do anything with it. But as I've studied it more this week, I've realized that, that this is actually probably the most convicting verse in this entire passage. You see the reason that it seems somewhat trivial is because that word gentleness doesn't hold a lot of power in the English language. And, and that word gentleness is a very, very difficult word to translate from the Greek. In fact, if you picked up uh, 10 different versions today of the Bible and looked at all of these different translations, more likely than not, every single one of them would translate that word differently. They say forbearance. They say patience. They say kindness. And the reason is because the Greek word epikeia is not used in the English language. So instead, we need to ask ourselves, how was that word used in Greek? Well, simply put, that word was used in the midst of resolving conflict. They would describe somebody that resolved conflict peacefully as somebody that expressed epikeia. They would describe a good judge as one that that carried epikeia. And that meant that that judge sought justice, not through judgment, but rather through mercy. So when Paul tells us to let our gentleness be evident to all, he's saying, let us seek justice through mercy rather than through judgment, and that will become evident to everyone around you. You see, as the church, I think we kind of flip that around. Is that we seek justice through judgment first, and then we express mercy. We say, what you are doing is wrong, but I love you. We say, the way that you think, the way that you process the world, the way that you do things, you don't have it right, but you're welcome to come here. And you see, that kind of faith isn't attractive to others. Paul is saying that if we are rejoicing in the victory that has already been finalized in Christ over sin, we know that we no longer need to be afraid of our future because it's already been secured for us. And because our future has already been secured for us, let us live with mercy and gentleness in such a way that other people that don't have their future assured for them are attracted to you are drawn to you, are brought into this kingdom and share in this glory of the victory on the cross. You see, our response to this future gratitude is to live a life of epikeia, to invite others into this victory so that they too can join us in eternity. Paul goes from this passage and he says, because you guys are rejoicing always, because you're assured of the victory, now your gentleness is evident to everyone. Your epikia, your mercy is drawing others in. So do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. This is a passage that we, as believers, throw around quite a bit. And having seen the impact of anxiety disorders in the students here at Christ Church, in loved ones, friends, and family in my own life, I've become a little bit embittered towards this notion. You see, it seems like Paul is trivializing these very real mental health disorders, and oftentimes, that's what we do, too. Somebody shares with us this, this burden, this weight of depression, of worry, of anxiety, and we say, well, just pray more. As if somehow that prayer will heal them from this very real physical malady. But you see, we're reading this passage in our own terms. We're not even paying heed to the verses that directly precede it. Instead, we're, we're pulling it out as this very quotable verse. Verse to toss around when, when really the, the real answer is maybe more difficult than we care to express. But you see, the early, the early world at this point were practicing pagan religions. And, and so the culture was, was filled with, with people that were adherents of, of Greek mythology. And, and in these pagan religions, there was not one God that these worshipers would follow. Instead, there were many gods And as you can imagine, with many gods, there were many expectations that were passed down from each of those gods. Each of those gods expected you as a human to follow them so that you might procure uh, security in eternity with them. But as many of you know, is that these gods oftentimes were in direct contradiction to each other. In fact, they were so fickle and argumentative that they warred against each other and often drew humankind into those very wars. And so if you were an adherent of these widespread pagan religions, you were constantly walking on eggshells, anxious that in following one God, you would anger another. And in compromising, you would anger them both. And Paul says, because sin is already defeated, because I told you to rejoice in the finality of what happened on the cross, you do not need to be anxious, spiritually anxious about your God finding you out for your failures and brokenness and condemning you to hell. Our God is reliable. Our God sets one path forth for us. And so as we act upon the nudgings of the Holy Spirit, we need not be afraid of retribution brought to us by Jesus. As we pray to Christ, we need not worry that God the Father would become jealous of our prayers. Instead, we can boldly enter into prayer before God without anxiety, knowing that he loves us and that he has already won victory over the sin and brokenness that causes us to to feel incomplete and anxious. This is not talking about anxiety in our day-to-day lives. This is talking about anxiety that comes in our spirit, that comes from the fear that we are not enough, for our Lord and Savior. And so Paul says, do not be anxious, but instead, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present those requests to your God. So does this mean that that if we're rejoicing in the finality of the victory of Christ on the cross, that, that we can just kinda use God as a genie in the bottle? That we can pray on Black Friday that, that a spot would open up at Yorktown Mall and magically the Toyota in front of us dissolves? That, that upon pulling the turkey out of the oven and, and finding that it is burnt and charred, we can pray and, and God will make it perfect and crispy and, and delicious? Well, Maybe. But let's think about the context You see, Paul is writing this letter to the Church of the Philippians from a prison cell. And not just any prison cell, but instead from a prison cell in which he is on death row. So his demise is evident, and he's writing this this letter to the Philippians knowing that he is likely going to die for his faith in just a matter of days. But still, he tells them to present the request before the Lord. Don't you think that that if he was saying that that God's a genie in the bottle and he can just uh, grant all your wishes, that he would have wished that he was no longer in prison? Maybe wished that he wasn't going to die for following God? Last year, I had a group of eighth grade boys that were in my small group. Uh, And at the beginning of the year, I, I had traveled with them from sixth grade up to eighth grade, and so we were starting to get closer. So at the beginning of the year, I gave them all my cell phone number, and I said, if anything ever happens to you, if you need advice on anything, it doesn't matter what it is, you can reach out to me at any time. You don't need to be worried that I'm going to tell on you. You don't need to worry that I'm going to judge you. Uh, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to help you through the tough times in your life. And so you can keep this number in your phone and, and call it without hesitation. And so in, in April, I received a text from one of those students. It was the middle of the night. It was after midnight. And, and i I felt my phone buzz next to my bed, and, and I kind of started my heartbeat a little bit faster because, you know, there are never really good texts that get sent to you after midnight. So I was starting to feel a little bit anxious about that, and, and I opened up the phone, and I looked down, and it said, it said, you said we can text you if we need help with anything, even if it's big, Right? and there was like a pit in my stomach because I was like, oh no, I don't, I, yeah, I said that, but, but I don't know if I really can do anything for you and, and, like, and you're like coming to me in your moment of need and I'm half asleep right now, uh, but I pulled myself together and I was like, yeah, what's up? Um, and then he texted good and then I got that dot, dot, dot over and over as it was going, as I could tell he was typing a really long text and, and my panic was kind of building and building up inside of me and he sent this text to me. Because I got a pretty gnarly math problem I just can't seem to solve. <laughs> x times x minus one times x minus three. Pretty complicated, I know, right? I breathe a sigh of relief and I texted back. I said, "I said I'd love to help you, but I'm probably not your guy here. I've got a theology degree, not an algebra degree." You see, I think that this is what we do to God is God says, I have assured your salvation in the victory of Christ Jesus on the cross. The battle is won. You need not fear about retribution. You need not fear being condemned to hell. You will not be judged. You will be offered only mercy from me. And because of this, you can bring anything to me. You don't need to be afraid coming to the throne and presenting your request to me. And so we say, oh, good. Well, I've got a pretty gnarly math problem, God. And sure, he'll try to help us with that, but that was never the point. That was never the desire. You see, in the context of this passage, I think it's fairly clear that that what Paul is saying is, if you need not worry about judgment from God, and the victory over sin has already been won, then you can come to God with thanksgiving in your heart for for that victory and that gift and you can tell him what's really going on. You can tell him that, that even though the war is already won, you're kind of losing the battle to sin. You can tell him that you're struggling with addiction. That you're filled with bitterness and frustration. That you can't seem to get your priorities straight, and you're far more focused on success in your career than success in your marriage or success in your faith. And God won't judge us. Instead, He will remind us that the victory is already won, and He will extend a hand to allow us to stake a claim in that victory. And Paul says in verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. What does it look like to be thankful for the future? To express future gratitude? It's remembering that Christ's victory has already been won remembering that we are no longer slaves to sin. Instead, we are free from it. And because we are free from our own sin by the mercy of God, we should display justice through a lens of mercy rather than judgment to those around us so that they too can be a part of this awesome community that Victoria was talking about earlier. And because we're so confident in this faith, in this victory, in this future, we shouldn't be anxious about our brokenness of our flaws, of our failures and shortcomings, but instead we can confidently approach God and ask Him to help alleviate those things from our life so that we can begin to experience His peace and that He can guard our hearts from sin for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we admit that we're not all that confident in the victory that you won on the cross. That there are times that we become so muddled in our sin, so turned around in the darkness that we assume you couldn't possibly love us and because of that we're afraid. And instead of uh, approaching you for help, we, we wander farther and farther and farther away until we have completely lost sight of your glory. Lord, we pray that with gratitude for the future, we would remember that you have already won. That our sin, while it may be tearing us apart, is not our master. And that because we are free from judgment, we can be an evident display of your mercy to the world so that all might take part in your victory and experience your peace which transcends all understanding with our hearts guarded by your strength. We pray this in your name, amen.